In the previous lecture, we completed our discussion of how genetic information flows in cells. Uh, we did this by looking at the final step in the pathway from DNA to proteins for this information, the process of translation. Let me begin today of reminding you where, be, where we began our discussion several lectures ago now, when we talked about DNA replication. As is true for all of the molecular processes that we've looked at so far, replication involves many enzymes working together in what really can be seen as an elegant and highly orchestrated ballet, with, in this case, the enzyme DNA polymerase as the key player. A ballet which is all choreographed to accomplish the task of accurately copying the information stored in the base pair sequence of DNA into another new molecule of DNA for replication. As elegant and uh, orchestrated as this process is, however, replication doesn't always work exactly right. Sometimes the wrong base gets inserted in a sequence, that a base that's not the correct complement for the base opposite on it in the template strand of the DNA that's being copied. DNA may also be damaged in a variety of ways, again leading to what are essentially mistakes in the sequence of bases. In today's lecture, we're going to look at the causes and consequences of errors that are introduced to the DNA uh, code. We'll see that the cell puts a lot of effort into avoiding and correcting such errors. We'll also see that errors are unavoidable. Often when errors do occur, they have serious negative consequences for the individuals in which they do occur or for the offspring of those individuals. But over the long run, and where we'll eventually go with this over the next series of lectures, such errors also provide a source of genetic variation, which is the substrate on which evolution by natural selection acts. Okay, we remember that DNA polymerase depends on complementary base pairing to accomplish this task of accurately synthesizing a new DNA molecule. And it's the base pairing that determines which nucleotide is going to be added next to a growing polymer of new DNA. DNA polymerase, however, sometimes adds the incorrect base. Now, if you could count the number of mistakes that are made in the copying process, that is, um, or I should say, uh, after the copying process is complete. In other words, you go and you say, here is the template, here is the resulting new DNA. How many mistakes are there overall? And you can actually estimate this in a number of ways. The number of mistakes is impressively low. It's only about one mistake in every billion bases, one in every 10 to the ninth bases. On the other hand, if you count how many mistakes are actually made by DNA polymerase during the copying process itself, that is, if you could look at each nucleotide as it was being added to the growing strand and determined if it was the correct one or not, in other words, the appropriate base pair or not, the number would be much, much larger, five or six orders of magnitude higher, about one in every 10,000, or by some estimates, one in 1,000. The difference here between the final product and the mistakes that are actually made during the copying process is due to the fact that there is an extensive amount of molecular machinery devoted to proofreading and repairing DNA in cells. Now, 
I said that DNA polymerase was making mistakes. Actually, we can't blame DNA polymerase. It's not really making the mistakes. The proper alignment of new bases with old bases during replication depends on the bases themselves lining up properly. That's what complementary base pairing is all about. Ultimately, they line up because of the hydrogen bonding interactions that are responsible for those base pairing rules we've referred to time and time again, A pairing with T, C pairing with G. All that DNA polymerase does, what its job is, is to find what the next base that happens to be there is and add it to the growing string, and it does that job right. If it happens to find the wrong base, it just adds it anyway. We call that mismatch error. Now, when a mismatch does occur, it means that after the DNA strand is synthesized, we'll have somewhere along that sequence a non-complementary base pair. For example, we have, may have an A paired with a C, which it normally doesn't, a mismatch. Now, DNA polymerase actually itself does look out for these mistakes. DNA polymerase does what we call proofreading repair. So you can think of it as though this enzyme, as it's walking down, it isn't really walking, as it's moving down the template strand of DNA, it adds a base, but then it looks back over its shoulder and it checks, is that the right base? And if it finds that it added the wrong base, so it'll add the wrong base if it gets the wrong base there. It just says, there's a base, I'll add it. But then it stops, it looks back, it doesn't really look, but it steps back um, one unit and it sees if this base is incorrect. If it is, it'll cut the base out, wait for another base to come in and then synthesize that. And hopefully the next base that base pairs there will be the correct base. This proofreading actually corrects a number of the errors that are introduced. It brings it down um, to a much lower number. So it brings it down. Uh, <laughs> the proofreading done by DNA polymerase dramatically lowers the number of mismatch errors from about one in, I said, 10,000 or maybe even one in 1,000 to as low as one in 10 million. One in 10 million seems pretty good. Only one error in every 10 million base pairs. In fact, I wish I could make a mistake in lectures only one in every 10 million lectures. But it's actually still quite a high rate given the size of the task at hand. That is, given the amount of DNA that actually has to be replicated in a typical organism. For example, the amount of DNA found in a human cell is about 3.2 billion base pairs, 3.2 billion base pairs. So if we have a rate of about 1 in 10 million, that means every time the DNA in a human cell is replicated, there would be about 300 mistakes introduced. Now when you consider the fact that over the lifetime of a human, there are billions and billions of cell divisions that occur, the number of mistakes would become astronomical and unworkable. So this mismatch repair done by DNA polymerase itself really doesn't take us as far as we need to go. Fortunately, there's another backup mechanism for correcting mismatches that occur during DNA replication. There is an ensemble of other enzymes, enzymes that we call mismatch repair enzymes, that work together to detect and to correct mismatches that are found in newly synthesized DNA. Now, think of these mismatch repair enzymes as essentially quality control officers. They're constantly inspecting the DNA that has been synthesized 
and checking for incorrect base pairings. If these proteins do detect a mismatch, they cut out the incorrect nucleotide. Or actually, they may even remove a section of nucleotides around this incorrect nucleotide, leaving a gap in the newly synthesized strand of DNA. Once that gap is created, new nucleotides will come in and base pair with the template strand, and DNA polymerase will come back and finish the job by stitching back in these new nucleotides. Again, hopefully this time, getting the right nucleotides in sequence. Now, this actually poses an interesting problem when you think about it. I just said that we have repair enzymes that can detect and correct a mismatched base, mismatched base pair. But this leads to sort of a conundrum. How do these repair enzymes know which one is the wrong base in the pair and which one is the right base? Uh, imagine you were given the task of looking over a newly synthesized DNA double helix and finding mismatched errors and correcting them. Finding these errors would really be no difficulty at all. You know the rules. It should always be A matched with T and C matched with G. So you just go down the sequence of base pairs and you look for exceptions to that. You say there's an A matched with a C. So that's a mismatch and I have to repair that. But here's the trick. How do you know which one of those bases is the wrong one and which one is the right one? And of course, that's the point. Because we don't want to just have correct base pairings. We want to have the correct sequence of the original template that we were copying. If we just guessed, if we just said, there's a mismatch, um, I better change one of those and randomly chose which one to change, then 50% of the time we'd get it wrong with the result that we would actually have preserved that error and have no way in the future to correct it because now we would have correct base pairing but incorrect sequence. So once a mismatch is found, how is it determined which of the two bases is the one that needs to be replaced? This is an interesting question that was a mystery for quite some time, but it was solved when uh, molecular biologists began to understand that the chemical structure of DNA changes in subtle ways as the DNA ages. Specifically, after a new strand of DNA is synthesized, some of the nucleotide bases in that nucle uh, newly synthesized strand begin to be modified slightly. Now remember, we looked a while ago at the chemical structure of these nucleotides, and they have on them a number of bonds that are just made to hydrogen atoms. For some of these nucleotides, those hydrogen atoms are replaced with what, what's called a methyl group. It's a carbon with three other hydrogen atoms. So instead of just a hydrogen, they'll have a carbon with another three hydrogens attached in that same position. This is a methyl group, and so when this happens, we say that the DNA or the nucleotide, has become methylated. Now, the process of methylation, it turns out, is a gradual process, and it doesn't begin until at least a few minutes after DNA synthesis is complete. What that means is that following a replication event, the old and the new strand of DNA in a double helix are different. They're different in how much they've been methylated. With the older strand... The strand that was the parent strand, the strand that was used as the template, and the strand that we're trying to copy accurately being relatively highly methylated, and the new strand, the strand that would have to have the mistake if a mismatch is detected, 
being relatively unmethylated. So the way that we know now that mismatch repair enzymes determine which of is the wrong and which is the right member of a mismatch base pair is by recognizing methylation along the two strands, even if the particular nucleotide themselves or the particular base pair themselves isn't methylated, they can determine which is the old and which is the new strand, and they will always then cut out the bases on the new strand. So we have a lot of, of, of um, molecular machinery that's, um, that, has, uh, uh, that is involved in finding mismatches and repairing them when they occur in the process of replication. In spite of all of this, some errors do get through. I told you that um, at the end of the day, when all of the mismatch repair has been completed, there's still about one in a billion mistakes that occur. This is pretty good. One in a billion, let's say on average, that might be three mistakes if an entire set of human DNA is replicated. But there's still mistakes, and over the long time, they do add up. And we're going to come back to consequences of these mistakes in a minute. But first I want to look at some of the other ways that errors can be introduced into the sequence of bases in a DNA molecule. It's not just replication that's responsible for mistakes. Other things can happen to DNA as well. It's a remarkable molecule, DNA. It does a lot of very important things. But one of the things it isn't good at is sort of staying intact. DNA is not known for being a durable molecule. In fact, it's pretty fragile overall. And it's constantly in danger of being broken or modified or damaged in a number of ways by a variety of physical and chemical agents. For example, radiation, which might come from ultraviolet light, suntanning, for example, or other kinds, x-rays or other kinds of radiations, are absorbed by nucleotides, and this absorbed radiation can cause even the strong covalent bonds that hold those molecules together to break apart. If this happens, the bases themselves might be damaged, rendering them non-functional. Or one or more base pairs might be deleted, or they might even be added. Or both strands of the DNA double helix might simply break along the, the sugar phosphate backbone of the helix, causing the entire molecule to split in two. Many kinds of chemicals, reactive chemicals, will also interact with chemical bonds in DNA and break them. For example, chemicals found in tobacco smoke are well known to be highly reactive with DNA and thus will damage it. There are a number of natural chemi chemical products you find in plants and fungi. Uh, an example of this is um, aflatoxin, which you may have heard of, which is produced by a mold that grows by, um, on peanuts, also highly reactive with DNA. So-called free radicals, which we might hear a lot about these days, which are just hydroxyl groups, oxygens attached to hydrogens, and that are produced normally by our own metabolism. These free radicals will also interact with um, DNA and potentially damage it. So DNA is, in a sense, under constant assault. Even if replication goes well, once DNA is put together, there are many, many factors which are assaulting it and potentially damaging it. In fact, by one estimate, again, in a single human cell, the DNA may be damaged in one or more of these ways a thousand times a day. By this estimate, in every one of your cells, a thousand times a day, something happens to your DNA. 
Now, as you might imagine from our earlier discussion, there is in this case another set of molecular machinery, especially in eukaryotic cells, that are devoted to detecting and correcting all sorts of the kinds of errors that creep into our DNA. Dozens and dozens, actually, of repair enzymes have been identified, and I won't go into the details. Most of these repair mechanisms, however, share something in common, and that is that, as we saw before in mismatch repair, they depend on complementary base pairing to correct mistakes when they find them. And the way they do this, then, when a mistake is detected, is to excise, cut out, one or the other of the single strands of the double-stranded DNA, removing, in this case, maybe a fairly large section. That, for this reason, these are called generally excision repair enzymes because they're excising this chunk of DNA, leaving, hopefully, the undamaged template strand as the template that the DNA polymerase, that, uh, that DNA polymerase will find and use um, complementary base pairing to resynthesize the, um, the part of the strand that was removed. Well, in spite of all of these best molecular efforts of cells, some damage invariably does go unrepaired, and there can be potentially serious consequences of that damage. For example, a very high percentage of cancers are caused by genetic errors brought on by exposure to various DNA-damaging agents, which is why we call those kinds of DNA-damaging agents commonly carcinogens. Usually these cancers are caused by damage to um, certain classes of genes. These are called oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. These genes code for proteins that are involved in regulating the way that cells normally divide and reproduce. These proteins essentially act as on or, in some cases, off switches for normal cell division. When these genes are damaged, they no longer function appropriately, either as on or off switches, and the cell begins to divide in an uncontrolled fashion. And, of course, this is a common defining feature of cancers, uncontrolled cell division leading to the formation of what we call tumors. There's a, a, a genetic disease called xeroderma pigmentosum that illustrates the importance of these excision repair mechanisms that we just talked about for preventing or correcting damage to our DNA that in this case can lead to cancer. Let me give you a little background. Xeroderma uh, pigmentosum affects about one in every quarter million people in the United States. Individuals who have this condition are particularly sensitive to the ultraviolet radiation found in sunlight. Now, in normal individuals, constant exposure to strong sunlight can lead to various kinds of skin cancers. We all know that, and we now know that that's because the ultraviolet radiation in sunlight damages the DNA in skin cells. This is why we have sunblock. In individuals who suffer from xeroderma pigmentosum, even a very brief exposure to sunlight can have the same effect. In fact, on average, people having this disease are several thousand times more likely to develop skin cancer during their lifetime. So it's actually a very serious disease. Now, recently, genetic analyses of people who suffer from xeroderma pigmentosum have revealed that they all have something interesting in common. They lack the ability to make one or more of the enzymes that are normally involved in excision repair. 
So what that means is that these individuals don't have the same molecular apparatus as normal people do that's always looking for and repairing DNA damage when it does occur. The point is UV causes damage in the DNA of everybody's skin cells. But most of us have repair enzymes that fix that, fix that damage most of the time, and only relatively rarely do we develop skin cancer or develop it if we um, expose ourselves to an excessive amount of sunlight. Individuals with this disease can't repair the damage at all, so any little bit of damage can have a very serious consequence. Okay, let's talk about the kinds of damage that happens in DNA from a slightly different perspective. Any change in DNA, any lasting change in DNA, the DNA of an organism, whether it's brought on by copy error or damage or otherwise, we can call a mutation. Now, in some cases, such as mutations arising from mismatch errors occurring in DNA replication, the change may be relatively small, the substitution of one base for another. We call those kinds of changes point mutations. They're called point mutations because they affect only a single point in the sequence of uh, bases in a DNA molecule. Mutations may also involve other relatively small but potentially more um, serious consequences, such as the insertion or deletion of a base pair along the string of a DNA molecule. You might recall this is the kind of mutation that Francis Crick induced in viral DNA when he was testing the idea that the genetic code is a triplet code. Remember, he would um, selectively delete or insert just one base pair and show that only when he inserted or deleted three would he have an amino acid sequence come back into register. Not surprising, we call these insertion mutations and deletion mutations, or just insertions and deletions. Now, damage to DNA can actually cause much larger scale kinds of changes. For example, if the damage causes the DNA double helix to break entirely, then entire segments of a chromosome can be lost. And we call those chromosomal deletions. Thousands of base pairs can just be eliminated. Or those segments that are broken out of a DNA molecule might get flipped around and put in in reverse. We call those inversions. Or those segments might be actually pulled out and moved to another part of the, um, uh, of, of the chromosomes of, of an individual or of a species. We call those translocations. They might actually be pulled out and somehow replicated and inserted in a number of different places. We call those duplications. So there are a number of kinds of changes that occur, not only on the level of single base pairs or small groups of base pairs, but in terms of entire stretches of DNA. Now, what are the consequences of these kinds of mutations more generally? We talked briefly about the negative consequence that can happen if a critical gene in a cell is somehow damaged, like a gene that regulates cell cycle causing cancer. Not all mutations necessarily have this kind of serious negative consequence. In fact, some may even have positive consequences, at least over the long run. Let me elaborate on this idea by considering the potential consequences of a single point mutation. We'll keep it simple. Remember the genetic code is redundant. 
So that means that if we have a single point mutation occurring in the third position of a codon, then it may have no effect at all. The DNA has changed. There is a mutation. But because the change has been in a base pair that is redundant in the codon, for example, the codon CCA and CCG both code for proline. If the A is somehow mutated and becomes a G, it doesn't matter. We still have a code for proline. We call these kinds of mutations silent mutations because unless we looked at the DNA sequence itself on the level of single base pairs, we'd never know it was there. Now, if that mutation occurs in a different part of a codon, let's say in the first uh, position, so for example, if a CCA, which codes for proline, is changed to a UCA, which codes for serine, then we will have a change that affects the amino acid sequence. But even a change in the amino acid sequence may not be discernible. And it may even have a slightly positive effect. The difference is hard to predict in advance. And it all depends on which amino acid is substituted for the other. And critically, and we know this from our understanding of proteins, how that substitution affects the shape and therefore the function of the protein. It's possible that one amino acid is substituted for another that has no really important effect on the way that that protein folds up. I mean, it will probably have some effect, but it may not affect it so much that the protein changes in shape so much that it loses its function in any way that we can easily measure. Now, it's also possible that a, um, an amino acid substitution does cause a more radical change in protein shape. And it's these kinds of changes that will lead to more serious effects. So, for example, these are the kinds of changes that may cause um, a gene-regulating cell cycle to completely lose its function. Again, we may only have one substitution of, amino, of an amino acid. But if it happens to be a particularly critical amino acid an amino acid that has a big effect on the way the protein folds up, then that same one amino acid substitution can screw the whole protein up, rendering it completely dysfunctional. Interestingly, there is a third alternative, and that is that the change of one amino acid actually makes the protein work a little better. You can imagine the relationship between shape and function of the protein may not be quite as good as it could be. I mean, if the shape of the protein is somehow determining what kind of chemical substrates it binds to act as an enzyme, I mean, it's conceivable that a slight shape change will make it bind that substrate even better than it did before. And in this case, a mutation would have at least potentially a slightly positive effect. Well... Over the long run, mutations are important because they change different uh, genetic information among individuals and populations. And as I said at the beginning of the lecture, in that way, mutations add genetic variation. And genetic variation is the stuff that natural selection works on in the evolutionary process, as we'll begin to talk about in a few lectures. But I have to point out that the only mutations that matter in this regard are those that occur in such a way that they can be passed to offspring. Now, up to this point, we've been a little bit vague about what we're talking about here as organisms, individuals, and cells. Everything has been in a cell so far. And we can think of the cell as being also the unit that replicates itself. 
So if a mutation occurs in a single-celled organism, when that single cell re, uh, reproduces, it's going to divide, and all of the DNA that was in the original cell will be copied, will be replicated, and copies passed on to the two offspring. So in that sense, for single-celled organisms, any mutation potentially is going to be passed on, assuming it doesn't kill that organism. But this isn't the case for us. If I have a mutation occurring in skin cells in my body because I've been out suntanning too much, my children don't have, my future children don't have to worry about that. Why? Because those mutations will die when I do. Why? Because those skin cells have no way of passing that genetic information on to my offspring. Instead, in multicellular organisms such as ourselves, there usually are, there invariably are, a small group of cells that have been segregated from the rest of the body. Cells whose sole function is to produce reproductive cells involved in producing offspring. We call those cells germline cells. And typically they're found in organs that we call gonads, and they're responsible for the production of gametes, which we would call sperm and eggs. Only mutations occurring in germline cells can be passed on to subsequent generations. Now, beginning next time, we're going to start looking at how information is actually passed on from parents to offspring. First, looking at mechanisms that are responsible for making sure that that information in complex organisms such as ourselves or in single cells is equally and accurately divided across the, the two cells that are created, either when a single cell divides or when gametes are formed for reproduction. And then we'll start looking at how these processes introduce another kind of variation into the genetic material that is, again, going to create variation on which natural selection acts.